This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is www.gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. We are starting a new series today, and oftentimes when we start a new series, we have some new books. So I want to let you know, we've got a couple today, and we've got some more coming for next week that I just want to let you know about that are at our resource uh, table, our little bookstore thing over there, which we don't mention enough. I need to do that more. But uh, this is one. Al Mohler has written a book recently called Words from the Fire, Hearing the Voice of God in the Ten Commandments. So you can get uh, this one back there. Uh, this is one I uh, very much uh, recommend. Excellent book. And then another one, I don't know if there'll be a rush on this, but there's a book called The Law of Perfect Freedom uh, by Michael Horton, Relating to God and Others Through the Ten Commandments. We were just able to get a steal on this for like five bucks, so there's a few, uh, there's a few out there, uh, and I don't, that was just a great deal. We bought all they had at Amazon for five bucks, so uh, we're selling them for the same. Hey, well, I'm excited. A new series on the Ten Commandments. I was thinking every time we start a series, I always say the same thing at the beginning. I'm so excited uh, about the new series, but I really am. A lot of things exciting. There's new donated uh, decor and furnishings out in the lobby. It's kind of new. I'm clean-shaven and loving that. So all kinds of exciting things as we launch into the Ten Commandments. And uh, we're going to do 11 sermons on the Ten Commandments. I'll explain that in just a second. But let's pray, and then we will, uh, we'll, we'll jump into this. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are gracious to us, and that you have saved us, and you have given us uh, a way to live that is pleasing to you, Lord. And you've not only given us a way to live, you're empowering us to do so. So we thank you for that, and we pray that you would speak loud and clearly to us today through your word, and uh, pray most of all that you would show us the Savior, Jesus Christ, as we embark on this study. Lord, please give me strength and mental clarity. Please give us all ears to hear and hearts to respond to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we live in a culture that is generally uh, positive towards the Ten Commandments. Generally, our culture is for the Ten Commandments, not, not for placarding them uh, in government-owned facilities or anything like that. But other than that, our culture is pretty positive on the Ten Commandments, and uh, certainly the church is pretty positive on the Ten Commandments, though there's some confusion. Are we obligated to obey them or not? And, uh, uh, and we are, so we're going to talk about that. But uh, there's some confusion about that. But generally, the culture and the church are positive on the Ten Commandments. The problem is that we don't know them. That's the problem, is that we are generally in favor of something that we don't really know. I mean, if right now, and I've actually done this before with a group, uh, and I haven't always known them myself, so uh, as a Christian, I haven't known them as a pastor, and as a Christian, I haven't known them uh, always, but... um, you know, I've actually done kind of a pop quiz thing before without names where I just had people write them down in order, and virtually no one could do that, write them down in order. Probably today we couldn't do that, most of us. But there's numbers of studies that are done to find out how familiar are we culturally with the Ten Commandments. And there was a recent study done in 2007 where they 
interviewed Americans and asked them to name the commandments. I'm not sure if it was in order or not, but they asked them to name the commandments, and then they asked them to name a couple of other things, which were, frankly, a little bit culturally dated. And this is the story from Reuters News Service. I'm going to read you just a section. How many of the Ten Commandments can you name? Put to the test, Americans recalled the seven ingredients of a McDonald's Big Mac hamburger and the members of TV's The Brady Bunch more easily than the Bible's Ten Commandments. So you see what they did? They interviewed people and they said, how many, you know, probably from the jingle of the 70s, how many uh, items that make up the Big Mac can you, and if you're young and don't know what I'm talking about, there was a song that you could learn uh, that taught you what was in a Big Mac. And how many of the Brady children can you name? So here's how the survey was found. This is churched and unchurched alike. 14% of people could name the Ten Commandments. I, I think that's high, actually. Uh, I think that's high, but that's about one in seven. One in seven could name the Ten Commandments. 25% of Americans could name all seven ingredients in a McDonald's Big Mac. And 35%, two and a half times the Ten Commandments, two and a half times as many people, 35%, knew all of the Brady kids by name. Now, I got to admit, when I first read this, I was a little bit self-righteous about those statistics because I can not only name the six kids. But I also know Mike and Carol were the parents of the Bradys. I know that Alice was the maid. Her love interest was Sam the butcher. And I could even talk about cousin Oliver, who was sort of the foster adopted Brady that was in the later, uh, later episodes of the show. So I was a little self-righteous when I saw those numbers, only one in three. But probably what's more concerning, um, and certainly more concerning for our spiritual health, is that only one in seven knew the Ten Commandments. It goes on to say this, a survey by Kelton Research found 80% of Americans could name the Big Mac's primary ingredient two all-beef patties, but less than 60% knew the commandment, thou shalt not kill. Less than half the respondents, 45%, could recall the commandment, honor your father and mother, but 62% knew the Big Mac has a pickle. Bobby and Peter, the least recalled names from the fictional Brady Bunch family, were remembered by 43% of respondents, topping the 34% who knew, remember the Sabbath, or the 29% who knew, do not make false idols. So more people, even though Bobby and Peter were less remembered, more people knew them than not to make idols and could list that in the ten commandments. Well, we have an opportunity in the coming weeks to move into the 14% and do our little part of raising that number uh, and learning the Ten Commandments. And we really want to do that in the coming weeks. We're going to take them a, a commandment at a time, so we'll have time to really think about them. And we want to learn them. I'd recommend memorizing them. And I'm going to give you some help on how to do that and how to teach them to your children over the, uh, over the coming weeks as we study this, we want to know them. We want to understand them. We want to understand how they relate to the Christian life. Uh, we want to understand them in a Christ-centered way. We want to understand how does Christ fulfill the law presented to us in the Ten Commandments? How does Christ sort of deepen the application of the Ten Commandments by taking them really to a, a heart level in terms of our application? So we want to understand them in a Christ-centered way. So today, what I want to do is I want to go over the prologue to the Ten Commandments, 
And I want to set up the context for how they were delivered. And maybe you saw the movie, and so you're familiar with this, of how they were delivered, but maybe, maybe not. And so I want to communicate a little of the history because the Ten Commandments have a context to them. They were given to the people of Israel uh, in, in Exodus 20 is when they were given. They're repeated in Deuteronomy as well. But they're given here in Exodus 20. And here, here was the situation. The people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves, and God heard their cry and wanted to deliver them from their slavery, and so he raised up a deliverer named Moses. And Moses was going to be a guy that was going to bring the people of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. So God sends Moses, and he encounters Pharaoh, who is the leader of Egypt, most powerful or one of the most powerful people on the planet. And uh, Moses politely ask, would you please let all of the slave labor, these people that are building all of your buildings and are your free workforce, would you please let them all go because God would like to meet with them and have them be his people, uh, not here under your rulership, but out in the land that he is going to give them. Pharaoh said, not a chance that I would do that. So God begins to bring plagues to get Pharaoh's attention and show him that Israel's God is indeed the true God, and he resists Pharaoh, resist, resist, will not let the people go until the last plague. Uh, The last plague is the death of the firstborn son of Israelite families, I'm sorry, of Egyptian families. So God strikes the firstborn son of the Egyptian families and lets the Israelite uh, first sons be spared this death. At that point, uh, Pharaoh lets the people go, agrees to let them go because there's been tremendous Uh, awareness brought on the power of God to him and to his people. So he lets them go and then thinks, well, maybe not. Maybe I should go after them. So the people of Egypt, the armies of Egypt, chase the people of Israel. They get up to the Red Sea. People of Israel are trapped. Then God separates, parts the Red Sea so his people can cross. The Egyptians come after the Israelites into the Red Sea. It closes up over them. Um, they die, and then God's people are free on the other side of the Red Sea. They're delivered powerfully. Now, while they're there, after about three months of being in the desert, we get to chapter 19, and God speaks. He's prepared to speak to them at this point. If you have your Bible, look in chapter 19 at verse 3, second part of that verse. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying... Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Very important. This is the setup to the Ten Commandments. God tells his people, I delivered you. I released you from captivity. It was like you soared on the wings of an eagle and I dropped you down gently. Why? So that... I brought you, he says, to myself. God frees his people and brings them to himself. And now, after he's delivered them, he's going to communicate to them what is his law, his rule, his direction for life so that they can be his people and reflect him and live in a way that will please him. So here's the context of the delivery of the Ten Commandments. He says, you know, consecrate yourself for three days. They're in the desert. Set yourself apart for three days, and then I'm going to speak to you. And this speaking is powerful. Look at verse 16. 
On the morning of the third day, where there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, and here it is, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he gives the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The Lord God brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he begins to give the commands. Now we're calling the series 10 words out of slavery into freedom. This is they've been brought out of slavery and they're being brought into freedom with God as their God now. And the reason it's called the 10 words is because the term 10 commandments is used 3 times in the Bible. But you know where it says the 10 commandments right there in that dark print above chapter 20 that that's an editor's edition that that's not in the text but 10 commandments is mentioned three times in Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 4 and in Deuteronomy 10 and each time in the ESV there's a little asterisk by it and if you look at the asterisk down at the bottom of your Bible it says the Hebrew is 10 words it says that God wrote on the stone the 10 words is what it's called and that's because each of these is a word from God now, there are commands, and if we count, we'd come up with ten commands, but they're, they're more than commands. There are, there are sayings of God. There are words of God. We're reading part of the Ten Commandments today, and the part we're going to look at, there's no command at all. So there are ten words from God of how the people are called to live. And today, we're just going to look at verse 2. This is the preamble, or the prologue, or the introduction to the ten words that God gave His people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And this is so important to understand this because this is the whole foundation for the commandments. And we will will misunderstand their purpose if we don't get this section, first of all, of what God says to them. You see, what he does here is he explains what he has done for Israel. Before he gives them a command, he explains that I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
he tells them what he's done for them. See, here's the point of this prologue, that what God does for us comes before what we do for God. What God does for us comes before what we do for God. He doesn't start with a commandment. He starts with an explanation of what he has already done for them. And their attention is wrapped, no doubt, upon God. They are hearing him speak. They are before a mountain, which is on fire. Deuteronomy 4 says there's a fire going up from the mountain into the heavens. And he is speaking to them, and he is, first of all, announcing what he's done. See, the Ten Commandments are not given so that the people can obey the Ten Commandments and then be God's people. They are already God's people. God has already drawn them to himself, and now, out of that grace, he is giving them the way that they are to live. They are his people. He is the great king. He has rescued them. He is making a covenant or an agreement with them as the great king, and he's describing to them how they are to live to be loyal subjects who are grateful for his deliverance and who live in a way that reflect the greatness of God. So the verse 2, which we're going to look at, I want to go phrase by phrase through that, word by word almost, explaining it and considering what God says to his people, what he's done for us before what we do for God. I am the Lord is the first thing he says. I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord. So he introduces himself, he explains who it is. This is who is speaking through the fiery mountain, the thunders, uh, the lightnings, it says. This is the God. I am the Lord, he says. Now, if in your Bible, you'll notice that Lord is written in all caps. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Sometimes in your Bible, it's just capital L and a lowercase o-r-d. But here it's all caps. And when it's all caps, that's the translator's way of telling us that the original word there is the name for God, his personal name, Yahweh. It's translating Yahweh. If it says L, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, it's translating some other word that's being called Lord. But here it is Yahweh. And Yahweh is the name that God gave describing himself to Moses in Exodus 3. Moses said, hey, I'm supposed to go tell Pharaoh that God wants his people to be let go. Well, like, what happens if he says, who is this God? There's a lot of gods to the Egyptians. So who do I say sent me? He says, you tell them Yahweh. That is my name. Now, Yahweh is the verb to be. And so what it means is, I am. What's his name? I am. I mean, that's a strong statement right there. I am being. I am that I am. I am existence. Now track with us just a second, just a little bit of a philosophical thing here, but, but it's, it's helpful, I hope. What his name means is that he in and of himself is existence. God is self-existent. Nobody created God. Everyone else is not self-existent. Everyone else exists because God allows us to exist. So our existence, our being, is dependent upon, contingent upon, him allowing us to be here. He is self-existence. No one created him. He is being in and of himself. And not only that, but he is not only self-existent, he is independent. When he says, what's your name? I am. He doesn't depend upon anyone. We depend upon God 
for our existence, for everything. Your beating heart right now is sustained by God. If God wants your heart to stop beating right now, you're dead. Game over. It's done. God is dependent on no one. Everyone else and everything else is dependent upon him. So this is a statement of great power. He's you know, demonstrated through the trembling mountain. I mean, it says the mountain is actually trembling. The only thing trembling more than the mountain are the people standing before the mountain watching all of this take place. And he comes with this very strong statement, I am existence, I am self-sufficient. So before he tells them how to live, he starts by describing his authority, his power. He is the king that is existent in and of himself. No one coronated him king. No one declared him king. No one said, I want you to be my God. No one even knew. He himself exists in power, all authority. Now, not only is he indescribably powerful, but look at the next phrase. This is is wonderful. I am the Lord. So that is, I am the I am. I am the self-existent one. I am the all-authoritative one. Now, look what he says next. Your God. This God who is self-existent and all-authoritative and and indescribably powerful, he says now, he condescends and says, I'm your God. You belong to me. That's the very reason they were brought out. They're his people, people of Israel. Now, how did they get to be his God? Did they elect him? Did they choose him? Did they pick him? How did they get to be his God? Well, it doesn't tell us right here. You have to go all the way back to Genesis 12. And God looks over the earth, Yahweh, I am, looks over the earth, and he picks a guy named Abram. He's later called Abraham. And he says to this guy named Abraham, who's just going along his business, he's an idolater, the one God comes to him and introduces himself to him, and this is what he says to Abraham. Um, I want you to follow me, I want you to go where I tell you to go, and I'm going to make a people out of you. He's old. He and his wife can't conceive. They're too old. But he says, I'm going to give you descendants, and I'm going to make you a people. And not only that, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to make your people a nation. And not only that, he says, one day all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And that's the promise that Jesus Christ will come through Israel. One day, Jesus Christ will come and give his life and die for sinners and be raised from the dead and will build a people for himself of every tribe, every nation, every tongue, male and female, young and old, Jew and Gentile. That's the promise. That's where it's all headed. But it starts with one guy. And he says, I'm going to make you a people. And so God looks down and chooses Abraham. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Uh, Jacob has a son named Joseph, and Joseph is the one that goes, is, is sold into slavery, he ends up going to Egypt. The rest of the family comes to Egypt. Then they become slaves. They're slaves for 400 years. So this is where, this is where it's come. It's come from Abraham. This large people, a group of people, have been brought together in Egypt. They're slaves, and this people is God's people. And when he says, I am your God, it's a recognition that I chose you as my people, starting with Abraham. And the reason... I brought you out of Egypt is because I am keeping my promise. I made a promise to Abraham that I would build a great nation and from it would come a Savior. And I'm keeping my promise because you're my people. And you soared on on eagle's wings out of slavery into freedom. And he's demonstrating his grace, his love. I am your God. Please notice this, that he says, I am your God before he says you shall not. Before he gives one command, he is affirming his grace, his love, his care, his rescue. 
His rescue for these people. Why does he start with that? Because what God does for us comes before what we do for God. It comes before in time, but it also comes before in importance. We need to understand what God has done for us, and that informs how we are to respond to him. And so he's telling them what he's done for them, and so that they will respond by living in a way that will glorify him. I am the Lord your God is the foundation of the Ten Commandments. So he not only says that, but look what he says next. I am the Lord your God, the third section, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, these were poor slaves that were working really hard. They were, had to make bricks without straw. They had to create their own bricks to work and to build Pharaoh's empire. They suffered tremendously. There was going to be no uprising. There was no chance that this small nation of slaves could rise up and overthrow the greatest power on the planet, Egypt. That was not going to happen. They were unable to free themselves from slavery. But God came in, and he's saying, I'm the one who's self-existent. Everyone's dependent upon me. Everyone looks to me. I'm all authoritative. Ask Pharaoh about that. Ask the people of of Egypt about that. They'll answer. I am your God. I love you. You are my people, and I rescued, delivered, redeemed, freed, got you out of slavery so that you could be brought into freedom. And not only that, but there's something very interesting. When they do leave uh, Egypt that's found in Exodus, this is in Exodus 12, verse 36. It says that the Israelites, who are slaves, plundered the Egyptians. When Pharaoh said you could go, God, it actually says in 1236 that God made the hearts of the Egyptians favorable toward the slaves, and it said they gave them silver and gold and clothing. So the Israelites are these poor slaves, God acts, and then they're hauling all the wealth of Egypt, however they can carry it, and leaving to the promised land with all the riches of their master and the slave owners. It's crazy what God did for them. And so he's looking at them and says, you are my God. I gave you freedom. I blessed you gloriously. I worked wondrously to free you by my mercy and my compassion. See, that's the gospel of an undeserved deliverance. They didn't deserve it, but God freed them. God redeemed them. Again, note in the passage, God is redeemer here before he is lawgiver. He is redeemer before he is lawgiver in this passage. Now, that's, we're going to talk in a minute. That's not the pattern of everywhere in Scripture. But here, that is the pattern. Grace before law. Redeemer before lawgiver. Because what God does for us comes before what we do for God. Now, he's about to give them this law. And he does that so that these freed slaves might not fall back into slavery. See, some people think that any command of God is is somehow enslaving. No, they were already in slavery. They have now been delivered, and they are given this glorious, glorious way to live from God. God is telling them how to live so that they can please Him. God is holy and good, and His law is holy and good, such that David can say, I love your law. Why? Because it's given by a deliverer. It's given by the God of grace. It's given by the God that has reached down and said, 
I am the Lord your God. I rescued you. I freed you by grace. It's a misunderstanding to think like the Old Testament is the the covenant or the section of Scripture that's all law and all rules, and the new covenant is all grace. The Old Testament's grace as well. How, How were they freed? How did they become the people of God? Well, it started with God's electing love to Abraham. Abraham took no initiative, all grace. How did they get freed from slavery? God delivered them. By their works? Absolutely not. By his grace. And then he gave him them a way to honor God and live in a way that would be pleasing to him. Now, there are people that took the Old Testament law and did try, Pharisees, for instance, did try to live in a way that they would make themselves right from God from the law. That is wrong, but that's never what the Old Testament intended. God doesn't say to them, okay, you're in slavery, you keep all these laws that I'm about to give you, then you'll be my people and I'll deliver you. That's not what he does. He says, you're my people, I'm delivering you, and then here's the way that you can live which will glorify and please me. They don't keep the law to become his people, they are his people, and then he gives them the law to follow them. Now, where this can kind of be confusing is because the law is used, the law, and when I say law, I'm not talking about the ceremonial law. I'm not talking about like sacrifices of animals in the tabernacle. I'm not talking about those things which all pointed to Jesus and, and he fulfilled all of those. I'm talking about the moral law, the, the commands that tell us what's right and wrong, which are primarily found in the Ten Commandments in a, in a, uh, in a summary fashion. So I'm talking about that. I'm talking about anything in the Bible that God tells us to do. That's what I mean by law. So um, sometimes we can think of the law as something that leads to the gospel. So the commands of God lead to grace, lead to good news. And here's here's a drawing of how we could see that. Sometimes the law is presented in a way that shows the law leads to the gospel. So how this works is Paul says in Galatians 3 that the law is a teacher that leads us to Christ. And so the law functions in three ways in the Bible. One is a foundation for civil law, which I'm not going to address. The other is as a teacher that leads us to Christ. What does that mean? The law shows us our need for a Savior. Jesus Christ dies to forgive our sins. That's the good news. The gospel is good news, okay? So law is anything the Bible tells us to do. And we're, talking, we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments. Gospel is grace. It's good news. It's what God has done for us. And particularly, it's Jesus Christ dying for our sins, uh, for the many sins we've committed. Jesus Christ dying, being buried, and being raised again. So Paul says the law can act as a teacher to get us to Jesus Christ. How does that work? Well, here's an example from the Bible. If you remember the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler, Jesus is going along, and there's a guy who's a ruler and a, a, a wealthy guy, and he comes to Jesus, Mark 10, and he says this to Jesus, um, good teacher, what do I need to do to receive e- inher- inherit eternal life, to receive eternal life? What do I need to do to go to heaven? So Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one good, and that's God. So I'm about to tell you, he says, you know the commandments, And so Jesus takes the commandments from the second half. The second half of the commandments are how we relate to one another. The first four commandments are about how we relate to God. No other gods, um, no idols, don't take his name in vain and remember the Sabbath day. So the first four are all towards God. The second six are how we live with one another, honoring our father and mother, not murdering, etc. 
So, Jesus says, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't commit murder. And this guy says, I've kept all those since my childhood. Okay? Law right here, I don't need a Savior. I don't need Jesus because I'm doing, I'm doing all the rules. So, I've kept the commandments as a way to receive eternal life. So what Jesus does is he puts his finger on this guy's heart so that the law will be a teacher to show him his need for a Savior. And he said, oh, okay, well, there's just one other thing. Why don't you go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me? Now, that's the first commandment. No other gods before me. This guy's God is his money, evidently. And it says he leaves disheartened. He's not willing to do that. Jesus wasn't offering him an alternative way to be a Christian. Jesus isn't saying there's two ways to receive eternal life. One is believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. The other is voluntary poverty. These are the two ways. There's one way. The reason he gives this way is so the guy, the right answer for the guy at that moment is to say, sell all I have. Well, I can't do that. My money is more important to me than God. And so I have another God. I haven't kept all the commandments. Who's going to forgive me? for my love of things when I should be loving God? Who's going to forgive me for trusting in my wealth instead of trusting God? I need someone to forgive that sin. That was the right answer. And then he could have met Jesus and everything would have been different, but he went away disheartened. So the law can lead us to see our need. It does. It's intended to lead us to see our need for a Savior. And that's why when we share the gospel, we want to, people need to know that they are lawbreakers and need a a savior. But the, God, but the other way this works is that the gospel, and this is the Ten Commandments, what we're looking at, the gospel leads us to the law as well. And this is another way to look at it. Gospel leads us to law. So that's Exodus 20. I have delivered you. I have forgiven you. I have saved you. God is saying, I am your savior. That's all gospel. To the people in Israel, I am your savior. Therefore, have no other gods before me. That's law. So he's saying, because you have been saved by me, delivered by me from Egypt, this is how you're supposed to live. Here's how that works in the New Testament. Here's a very familiar verse, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Where's that on the drawing? That's gospel. You're saved by grace. How do you become a Christian? It's all by grace. It's all through faith. That not of yourselves. Nobody can boast in being a Christian because it's not what you do. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Do you know what comes next? That's right, verse 10. Brilliant. Verse 10, 2, 8, 9, then verse 10. This is what verse 10 says. You've been saved by grace. Here's verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in us, uh, for us in advance to do. Been saved by grace, that of faith. Why were you saved by grace? What's the purpose? So that you would do good work, so that you would live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is the gospel leading us to a lifestyle, not for our salvation, we're saved by grace, but then our lifestyle is to reflect the work of God in our lives. So, the law is used as a teacher to bring us to Christ, and then once we're, because we see we can't do it, and then once we're a Christian, we're forgiven, the Holy Spirit lives in us and begins to change us, the grace of God changes us, so that we can then do what does Paul say? We can then, we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared for us, so that we then can live according to God's rule, which we're calling law here today, God's rule for 
our life. So, in the Ten Commandments, grace comes before law. To become a Christian, law becomes before grace for us, so it's sort of circular. So I hope this isn't confusing, but here's a drawing that really describes how this works for the Christian. Getting dizzy? So for the Christian, this is the plan of growth. This is how you grow as a Christian. This is how law and gospel work together. So let's take the first commandment, and since we already talked about the rich young ruler, let's talk about the sin of greed. I mean, that's a foreign concept. Nobody in Frisco knows anything about that, but let's just say there are some greedy people around here. Um, (laughs) Yep. Uh, Okay. And not just Frisco. How about, like, in this room, and, like, how about me? So let's start right there in our own chair. So here's how this can work. So you're already a Christian. Let's assume for this illustration you're already a Christian. If you're not, you need a Savior because you've broken every one of these commandments at the heart of them. So the law needs to lead you to Jesus. You need to be forgiven. But if you've been forgiven, you're a Christian. So you're reading this, and the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. So let's use the same thing as rich angry. No other gods before me. Okay, so let's say one day I find myself being particularly worried and particularly anxious. Matthew 6, God says, do not worry. Do not worry. God will provide for you. That's the, that's the essence of the, uh, of the chapter. It's a sin to worry. He says, do not worry because I will take care of you. Don't worry about what you wear, what you eat. Don't worry about financial provision. So one day I'm worrying. Let's say I'm anxious. I'm fretting. I'm concerned about financial provision. At that point, what's being revealed in my heart is that I don't trust God. At that moment, I have a God a place to lean, a place to trust. I have hope and trust in a bank account or a retirement fund, or the lack thereof is causing me to worry, tempting me to worry. And so at that moment, I come and I say, you know what, there's something besides God. I'm not thinking that God's delivered me in Jesus Christ. He's forgiven me. I'm not thinking God has provided everything for me. I'm not thinking God is faithful and God is good, and I can lean on him. Obviously, we work, but we lean on him to provide. And so what I realize is at that moment, there is something in my heart that's more important than God. That's the law reveals to me that at that moment, I have another God. I'm trusting money and not God. So that law brings conviction. I say, Lord, that's wrong. Because many places in Scripture, including the first commandment, including Matthew 6, disallow that. So I run to the gospel That's the loop. I come to the gospel and say, Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that you died for greedy people. Thank you that you died for idolaters. Forgive me for not believing that you'll be good and you'll be faithful. Forgive me for worrying and fretting as if you don't even exist. Forgive me from really insulting your character to say, well, maybe God won't provide for me. Maybe God's not good. Please forgive me. Thank you for dying on the cross to forgive that sin. Thank you not only that you died for me, but that you fulfilled this. You had no other gods before your father. You were never an idolater, Jesus. You lived perfectly. Thank you for fulfilling this for me. Thank you for fulfilling the law. Thank you for dying in my place. And now, would you give me power to live differently? So forgive me that and help me to live in a way, help me to trust you. Help me to rely on you by your Holy Spirit. So maybe I need to learn some scripture that helps me think of God's provision. Holy Spirit, give me a heart to trust and faith so that I can do what? Continue to worry and sin? No, so that I can go back up and I can seek to obey. You shall have no other gods before me. So the gospel forgives me and empowers me because of what God has done for me to then trust him and fulfill this. 
So in essence, what God says here is, I'm the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. I did miraculous things. I split a sea and then caused it to come back over your enemies. That's powerful stuff. I am speaking from a mountain that is on fire. So given that, don't worship anybody else. Worship the one true God. Yes, that's prohibitive. You can't follow stones and totem poles. Yes, you can't do that, but you get to have me. So because of the grace of God, follow me, worship me, know me, enjoy me, be satisfied in me. That's following God's law from the Scripture, empowered by the Gospel. So that's great. That works until I get out to the parking lot and start worrying again. (laughs) And then I'm right back here. Well, how many times do you do this? Oh, like your whole life? Faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Repentance and faith. That's how we grow as Christians. And you know what God's plan is? Is that over time, by His Spirit, we start trusting Him more. And and there's actually, you can actually be changed by God. We actually can trust Him. And money's not everything. And people's approval's not everything. And health's not everything. And my job's not everything. God can increasingly become everything to us. And that's how it works together. So here is grace I've delivered you, so trust me, is what he says. The Ten Commandments reflect a life lived for the glory of God. Well, are we supposed to obey these? I thought we are supposed to obey stuff in the New Testament. I'm not going to get into that right now, but I will say that's a moot point because nine of these commandments are all repeated in the New Testament. And by the, yeah, by the way, God still doesn't want you murdering people or worshiping idols. None of that's changed, okay? So, yes, this moral law continues. One of them, there is some adjustment. Remember the Sabbath day the fourth command, so we'll talk about that. But that's not repeated in the same way in the New Testament, but the others are. So this is the way that we can live to please the Lord, and this is what he wants to do for us, to enable us, that when we see our sin, we run to Christ for forgiveness, and we ask him to continually change us. What God does for us comes before what we do for God. Jesus died to forgive us for failing to obey the law, and was raised so that we have the power to an increasing way, never perfectly, but an increasing way, little by little, desire to love God more and love others more. You know, when I think about this series that we're coming into, I'll wrap up with this, but when I think about what's in the weeks ahead for us, because we're not even going to teach the Ten Commandments yet, we'll start, this is just the intro. But when I think about it, I think about what would happen? What would happen if we starting with learned what God expected. That'd be a great place to start. What if we learned the Ten Commandments? And not only learned them, what if God began to work in our hearts in a way where by His Spirit we wanted to honor Him through them? Jesus said all the commandments can be summarized under two headings. One is love God. The second is love others. What if God began to work in us in a way where we wanted to love God and please Him? That we saw this as the rule of life for people that are free. That's what it is. They're free. We don't see it as slavery. We see it as freedom. What if by God's power, because we're not earning anything from God, He's already done everything. We're just responding. What if we began to want to please the Lord and began to live in a way where we lived in that pattern that we showed, where we're conscious 
of God's rule and reign, and we're repentant where necessary, and we're receiving power to change, and we're incrementally being different. What if, what if that happened in the church? I mean, what if that happened at Grace Church? Appropriately named because what God does for us is, comes before what we do for God, and grace is a statement of what he's done for us. What if that began to happen? What if that began to happen in our small groups? What if that, and it is happening, but what if it increasingly happened? What if it began to happen in an increasing way in our families? What if God took this word, these 10 words, and began to apply them in us in such a way that it changed how we responded? What, what, wouldn't God be honored? And wouldn't, wouldn't there be a testimony of the power of God? See, that's, that's the whole point here. He's bringing them into the, this, this land that he's setting apart, and he's saying, I don't want you to live like the Canaanites. Why doesn't he want them to serve other gods? Well, one is they're not real, but two is they are a distinct people for him. He wants people to look and say, oh, they're different. That's Yahweh's people over there. What if that happened with us such that we lived in a way from our heart? Not not just that we were those who avoided killing people, which is certainly noble. Please continue to do so. Not only that we avoided killing people, but what if we did what that commandment implies and began to support and desire life and seek to be life-giving? What if we didn't just avoid stealing, but what does that imply? It's not just Stop stealing. The New Testament says don't steal, but give. Steal no longer. What if we began to be a people that not only stole from others, but began to give to others what we have? What if the children, the teenagers, the adults all began to apply the fifth commandment? Let's just say teenagers. Let's start there. What if the teenagers in our church began to look at that and say, boy, the law says honor your father and mother, which means from my heart, desire to act in a way that would be honoring to them to obey it's not just external obedience what if it is you know what if i really wanted in my heart to be pleasing to the lord by honoring serving being a blessing to my parents what would happen if that happened where young people saw here's where i failed to do that and so lord please forgive me for dishonoring attitudes dishonoring words And then what if young people went to their parents and said, please forgive me for my dishonoring attitudes and my dishonoring words. And what if young people said, God, please help me to live in that way. What if parents then began to say, well, I haven't acted honorably. Please forgive me for the ways that I've tempted you to dishonor me. If young people took that to heart and the gospel burst forth in their heart that grace led to obedience, the young people would be a light in a dark world because that would stand out that is so foreign we can pick any of these commandments i just picked that one we could pick any of these commandments giving rather than stealing life rather than death celebrating what others have and honoring others rather than coveting what they have pick any of them you know rather than committing adultery living in purity and not only living in purity but cultivating a joyful sexual life within the confines of marriage. That's the pro to the con that's forbidden there. Don't commit adultery, but do have great union in your marriage. Enjoy what God has given in the, in the way he's given it. Every one of those, what would happen? Again, what if young people live there? That would be a light in the darkness. That would invite a question, why? What's going on here? That's different. Well, here's what's going on here. We're God's people. 
and Jesus rescued us. He didn't rescue us from physical slave owners. He didn't rescue us from Pharaoh. He rescued us from the power of sin. He forgave our sin by dying on the cross. He was raised to life on the third day, and he ascended and now rules and reigns, and he is building his church, a people that are saturated with his grace, that are covered in his love, that are overwhelmed by all that he has done for us. And the response of our heart when we see that kind of God, the self-existent God who's made us his people, the Savior who's given his life, when we see that kind of love, it's, it's melted our hearts so that we want to say, how can we please you? By grace, we've been saved. Now, what are the good works we can do to honor you, thank you, to reflect the compassion you've shown us? And one of them is that we can honor, love, bless our mother and father. That's why we're doing it. Maybe not that lengthy of an explanation, but you know what I'm saying. Why are you doing that? Because of Jesus. Because he's changed us from the inside. See, the one thing we have that the people of Israel did not have, we have the Spirit of God living on us. We have the completed Scripture, which they didn't have. This was the first time they heard God. We have the completed Scripture. We have the Spirit of God living in us. And we have God working to change our desires to be conformed into the image of Christ. None of us will ever do this perfectly. We fail regularly. That's why there's a Savior. But Jesus didn't remain in the grave. He came alive so that his power can change our hearts. He defeated sin and death so that we can be different, so that we can be changed. What if over the coming weeks, those in our midst who don't know Christ, who aren't Christians, children in our midst, what if the law came to them, exposed their need for a Savior, and they were converted? That would be glorious. And what about if those who are Christians would have conviction of sin and turn, asking forgiveness, receiving power, for change. That's our prayer, is that we be changed in the coming weeks, that God rule and reign and make us not informed Christians who could be in the 14% of the survey, but could make us people who love God's truth and whose God's truth beats in our hearts because we want to please the one who rescued us. What God does for us comes before what we do for him. Let's pray. God, thank you for your great love for us. And I pray that in the coming weeks that you would do the very things we dream of here, that you would change us individually and as a people. Lord, I pray that you would change me. That, Lord, we would, we would see our need for a Savior as we read these commandments, that we would see our need as we study them, that we would be aware of our need and that we would turn to you. Lord, that we would turn to you for forgiveness, some for the first time becoming Christians, others of us coming again and asking for you to change us, asking for you to work in us, asking for you to change our desires. Lord, thank you for the great rescue you've given us. You've brought us out of captivity. You've brought us into your presence. You have um, forgiven all of our many sins, and you've given us new life. And we say thank you for that today. And we ask that you would empower us to live in a way that's pleasing to you. Help us to help one another. Lord, help us not to be walking around as self-righteous judges of one another. Help us to be supportive of one another and help one another and encourage and strengthen one another in the good news of the gospel as we seek to be changed by your glory. Lord, thank you that it's all by grace. And thank you that your grace leads to a life change in us. And we pray for all of us, Lord, young and old, 
um, alike that you would be working in a memorable way. Mark us in these coming weeks as a people who've been changed to love God and love others all by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.